Hello and welcome to Switzer TV Property. I'm Peter Switzer and on tonight's show, we asked the question, are Airbnb landlords still dumping their properties into the permanent rental market? We'll do that with Dr. Andrew Wilson, the founder of myhousingmarket.com.au. And do Chinese and Asian buyers really want to get back into the Australian property market? We'll check that out with Monica Tu, the founder of Black Diamonds Property Concierge. And finally, we find out how to maximise all your tax deductions if you've got a rental property with a quantity surveyor by the name of Jeff Pinney from Mintax. The savings will shock you. That's your show for tonight. So let's kick off with Dr. Andrew Wilson. Well, each week we like to talk to somebody at the coalface of the property sector. And this week we've got Dr. Andrew Wilson from myhousingmarket.com.au. Andrew, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Peter. All right, so you know, you've had a, a long history of tracking the, the property sector, former chief economist at Domain and, and a lot of other areas. What are you seeing right now? Well, it's been interesting, obviously an interesting four months, three months, Peter. Um, there's no doubt that we're in, you know, significantly uncharted waters during the, uh, the uh, I guess, the trough of the shutdown. Um, but I think one of the things that was revealing was that the markets, our housing markets, didn't really come to a close during that period. Uh, there was still buying and selling activity occurring, uh, certainly at a lower level. But there's no doubt that as the good news has started to grow in terms of the shutdown, uh, we've seen confidence uh, returning at higher levels anyway to uh, our housing markets. Uh, sellers are back in the market. Uh, I track newly listed homes on a daily basis, Peter, uh, and I have an index which I've been, which I based prior to the coronavirus in March, and uh, certainly it fell away uh, quite sharply through April. Um, but it has recovered. Once the, the news came that the shutdown restrictions were easing, uh, it did encourage more sellers into the marketplace. Uh, and quite interestingly now, we've, we've seen quite a surge over the past week after the Queen's birthday holiday. Mm. And uh, if we compare uh, new listings to the same time last year, Peter, uh, quite interestingly, it's around about 10% higher than where it was a year ago. That's the new listings coming into the market. Now, there's a bit of catch-up energy there because it was such a trough through April. But nonetheless, it does reflect, I think, that sellers are quite happy to test the market at the moment, albeit at lower levels. And I also think it does uh, reflect other measures of confidence, such as uh, consumer sentiment surveys and the share market, which has also uh, built a base over the last month or so. And I think that's just a you know more good news has uh, increased the optimism that things won't be as bleak as uh, perhaps we thought uh, a few months ago. Well, Andrew, I don't know about you, but with my degree and my years of teaching economics at the University of New South Wales, I never taught pandemics 101. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I, and I, so it seems to me I, I, I am watching the economic data and it's all pointing to good stuff. But the, the rogue piece of data, which I don't have confidence about, is, of course, is infection rates. Yes. What, what do you think the surprise news that Victoria's having problems with infections, albeit they're still small, but no one wanted to see any uptick in infections. What kind of Maybe. impact do you think that's going to have on house prices over the next month or two? Well, maybe the news was too good to be true, Peter, that we were 
coming out of the of shutdown in an orderly fashion, it seemed. Um, but the two biggest states in terms of population, New South Wales and Victoria, Melbourne and Sydney, um, had uh, were moving through into a much more open environment. And I guess uh, perhaps it was just a message that these things can't be predicted, as you suggested, um, and that there's still some challenges ahead to be able to really get rid of this thing. Uh, hopefully we won't move into a, uh, another sharp lockdown. Um, the economy has uh, certainly uh, suffered from the closure of businesses. The latest unemployment numbers, of course, continue to be quite uh, bleak. Um, but um, there's, there's a certain disparity between the uh, capital city uh, economies, Peter, in terms of unemployment rates. So Sydney, actually, the Sydney unemployment rate fell over May down to 6.1%. Uh, However, the, uh, at the other end of the scale, the uh, states, the capital cities with the hardest uh, lockdowns have uh, unemployment rates uh, around about 8%. And of course, that's not good news uh, for that section of homeowners that perhaps uh, are under some financial stress. Um, we have had that offset to a large degree by the government's job seeker allowances. Uh, I'm not sure we're going to see, we don't really see significant stress sales during periods of high, higher unemployment, but this is an unknown period we are moving into. Uh, and we are starting to see other sections of the housing market, such as the rental market, uh, producing some interesting results. But look, so far, it's okay. But obviously, there's a message from what's happened in Melbourne over the last week or so that we cannot take anything for granted. And that means the outlook as well. Okay, let's talk about um, the rental market because yeah. I, I talked to you know, colleagues or, or rivals of yours over the last few weeks. At one stage, Airbnb, because yeah. people weren't getting Airbnb customers, they were going on to the yeah. more normal market and sort of flooding the supply. Now, I've got a, call, a friend who's got an Airbnb property in the mountains and she just told me today she's, got, she's booked out six weeks straight. So that's New South yeah. Wales. Yeah. What are you seeing with the, the toing and froing of Airbnb properties and its impact on rents and therefore investment property prices? Look, it's been a fascinating uh, past month or two, Peter, as you suggested, in regard to Airbnb. There's no doubt there was a flood of Airbnb holiday accommodation coming into the permanent market. We had um, uh, uh, vacant uh, rental properties, particularly units at record levels in Melbourne and Sydney. Um, and, and really the market was flooded with that product, uh, particularly from the holiday accommodation Airbnb landlords. Mm. But as you've said, interestingly, over the last few weeks, we've seen that reverse itself. Mm. Uh, and a lot of those Airbnb properties that were transferred into permanent accommodation have now gone back to holiday accommodation. And I think it's quite remarkable. Now, uh, there's still certainly high levels of uh, vacant properties, particularly units in Melbourne and Sydney, but it hasn't, uh, if anything, it's eased slightly. Mm. And uh, as you suggested, the uh, the Airbnb is now moving back into holiday accommodation with uh, reflecting what is some uh, quite strong demand in that area. And it's not just New South Wales uh, as the epicentre of that, but also uh, there's a lot of forward bookings into Queensland as well, mm. which is good news for the Queensland economy, of course, because they're extremely, you know, they are exposed to uh, the tourist sector mm. probably more than any of the other states. But uh, there's, there's certainly more bookings, forward bookings from uh, for holiday accommodation in Queensland in anticipation of that uh, border closing. But one of the other interesting aspects from the rental market, 
Peter, which I've been tracking, is that we're actually seeing a falling away, particularly in Sydney, of the number of houses that are being uh, that that are vacant for rent. So whether that's just a short-term blip in the series or not, it's uh, certainly a trend that's worth watching. Now, whether that's because the churn rate of new rental properties is decreasing as landlords and tenants decide to stay put uh, in terms of their existing investments, but um, or their existing residences. Um, but uh, nonetheless, the other, I guess, the bottom line is that we haven't seen really any movement in rents so far uh, in terms of what has been a surge in supply, particularly in the unit market over the past uh, three or four months. So uh, at this stage, it's still looking uh, reasonably balanced, the rental market uh, has risen and fallen in terms of new supply. Um, but I still think we've got some issues going forward uh, with the long-term drivers of the rental market, particularly student accommodation, Peter, uh, we're certainly going to see less demand uh, from students, particularly in Melbourne uh, and Sydney, uh, going forward as that uh, the student demand is restricted by um, you know the shutdown or the uh, quarantine issues with the coronavirus. Okay, let's go to you know the news story that possibly stamp duty reforms are on the way. Yes. How likely do you think it will be? What impact will it have? Well, there's no doubt uh, that, you know, replacing stamp duty with land tax is on the wish list of just about every state government, particularly New South Wales uh, and Victoria. Uh, you know, it's great when the rivers of gold are flowing uh, during the upswing in the cycle, Peter, of course. That's great news for state government coffers. But when, uh, when markets ease, of course, they can't uh, rely on that same flow of income. And the replacement that, of course, is favoured is a land tax environment where everybody pays land tax with, of course, some uh, qualifications and restrictions. I think that regardless of the economic merits of the argument, I think that we shouldn't be looking at uh, changing the tax mix until at least we get a sense that our economies have stabilised, that our housing markets are back to normal. We just don't want to scare the horses, Peter. Mm. Uh, I think the stamp duty could be a viable uh, mechanism to use to stimulate our uh, our housing markets. Um, but uh, at this stage, I think that uh, we should wait until our economies have stabilised before we start talking about what would be a very significant change to uh, the tax mix. And, and of course, something that would have to be very strongly sold, because I'm not sure people would be terribly enthusiastic about, um, you know, having to uh, transfer a discretionary tax, that is one that you pay when you purchase, with one that you've got to pay all the time. Andrew, this is the hard question. <laughs> so a, a beloved niece or daughter comes to you and says, Dad or Uncle Andrew, I want to yeah. buy a house. Yeah. Uh, we need to move in sometime this year. Should I go and try and buy now? Or do I wait for the spring when there might be a lot more supply on the market? What would be your best guess advice? Well, look, Peter, it's always simple in the sense if you do see something that you like, you should purchase it. Uh, at the end of the day, it's a home rather than a house that is a financial asset. Of course, we all know it's a financial asset and mm. it's a very strong financial asset in this country for various reasons. But um, primarily, it should be something that you're going to feel comfortable with in terms of creating a home environment for the longer term. I mean, the average turnover of property is around about six years, Peter, and that's a time when you establish yourself in a neighbourhood and pay off your mortgage and move on with your life and your financial circumstances. So I think firstly, if you can find the property uh, that suits you, you shouldn't be concerned about 
the outlook in terms of uh, the, the market. But of course, as long as you have the financial uh, confidence that you can afford it uh, and going forward. But there's no doubt, as you suggested, there will be more stock coming into the market uh, over spring. So there will be more of a choice. But as I said, uh, the markets have uh, proven to be reasonably resilient uh, in terms of the buyer and seller activity. And uh, I, th I think that, you know, it's really about the good news, bad news cycle, Peter. Mm -hmm. And we've had the bad news out of the way to a large degree in terms of at least an easing in the shutdown. We've had the recession headline out of the way now, uh, even though it's not official, it will be in three months time. Um, so I think that we can more or less get on with the business of what we do in terms of uh, selecting a home or selling a home uh, without you know, overly being overly concerned about the black clouds ahead. There's certainly grey clouds, Peter, mm. but uh, there may even be a hint of sunshine there. So look, it's about individual choices. And if you see something you like, uh, particularly with interest rates set to stay as low mm. as they are for a long, long time, go ahead and buy it. All right, okay, I'm, I'm gonna give you a second part, this hard question. Now you're a seller, you've got a home and you wanna sell it. Do you sell it now or do you wait for spring? Well, look, there's no doubt that, um, you know, buyers have the energy at the moment, uh, Peter, in a sense, or, or sellers have the energy at the moment. Um, and look, I think that the, the uh, you know, again, it's about uh, staying in the market, that if you're looking for, uh, if you're looking to sell, then you should uh, be prepared to not move out of the current market circumstances. Of course, we're in winter at the moment um, and uh, we will get more stock and that means more competition for sellers uh, in three months time. But again, I think it's about staying in the marketplace if you're an owner occupier. Um, but of course, you know, at the moment, it's probably better to be uh, a buyer uh, than it is to be a seller, given that uh, stock numbers are lower and competition for property isn't as strong as that we had it in March. We can see those clearance rates. Uh, although looking a little bit better, I'd still take them with a grain of salt, 60% uh, clearance rates. Uh, I don't think we've got that, uh, you know, competition for property that suits sellers that we had in March. Um, but again, it's about if you're selling, if you can get a property that you like, um, then whatever you lose on the swings, you'll gain on the roundabout. All right, mate. I think I'm going to get a headline out of that. Thanks very much, Andrew. Well, I'm catching up with Monica too, who's the founder and director of Black Diamonds. Now, Monica has been described as the super agent of Chinese property buyers here in Australia, but also business people as well, who come to Australia and effectively want to set themselves up along with their family. And Monica is basically a concierge who does all that sort of stuff. Great to see you, Monica. Thank you so much for having me, Peter. I've got so many issues I'd like to bring up with you because it is a, an unbelievable time. I guess one of the standout questions is how has the, uh, the COVID-19 um, problem affected your business? I think uh, COVID-19 affected literally everybody's business. Uh, and it's been very tough because, you know, for, uh, as you know, in uh, properties, so we, it's uh, like a face-to-face -face business, it's a personal relationships. So it's actually, uh, um, yeah, slowed down a lot. But, um, you know, so if I can share with you is that, you know, we, we are uh, uh, strivers, right? So we, mm -hmm. we found a really niche to how to connect with the buyers in this very difficult time. So very luckily, and the Black Diamonds Property Concierge is still doing quite well. Okay. So what are we seeing in terms of Chinese, and I, and I, I bet Hong Kong interest 
in trying to either buy property here or even create businesses here? Yeah, so you know, I, I, let me explain to uh, to your audience. So there are two types of property buyers uh, from uh, internationally. Let's say Hong Kong, Singapore, and China. So one of type is investors. So investors, these are the people, they don't have to have Australian PR or residency, so they can actually invest literally from wherever they are. Yeah. So these type of buyers are actually heavily affected because uh, you know they cannot travel. And, but the inquiries, the good, good things, the inquiries for uh, buyers from Singapore, Hong Kong, and China has actually increased by 25% during mm. the pandemic. So there's another type. So type one is the investors. So type two is the homeowners. So these are the international buyers. They have already got a permanent residency yeah. in Australia. So these are the people's, uh, very interesting. Some of them are actually back in uh, you know overseas they say hong kong singapore and china but some of them actually stayed back because of pandemic so we've been always like servicing the people who stayed back since the chinese new year and the business actually uh, doing really really well because they found australia is more like a, 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 a country to live so mm. they are australian residents but normally they travel from Australia to China or based in Hong Kong or based in uh, Singapore, but now they decide to reside in Australia because the government handled pandemic really, really well. Yeah. Now, what, what is the, the current demand for Australian property by Chinese, Hong Kong and Singaporean um, buyers? Um, it's extremely strong. So it's for a couple of reasons. So number one, Australia is still the preferred country to live because of the uh, the environment and because the way we handle the pandemic. So um, we we see a lot of people. You know, previously, you know, they uh, they uh, families in Australia, but they're still traveling. You know, uh, across the country, doing the trades and um, uh, um, you know now, uh, you know, we, we have them actually stay here permanently which is really good for, for my business. Mm. How, how, uh, how is the government here in Australia uh, welcoming um, money from China, Hong Kong and Singapore to buy local property? I, I don't think uh, the government is really welcoming the foreign investment at this uh, moment. Mm. Uh, just uh, to say that, you know, um, the stamp duty has, you know, dramatically increased, and all the message out there for the, the international buyers, are like you know, um, obviously, Peter, you have noticed it is a, a kind of restraint between the two governments. I think that would really affect maybe the confidence for investors to invest in Australia. Mm. So, if the government was more welcoming, um, do you think there would be a flood of uh, interest? to buy property in Australia? I think if the government is welcoming, I think, you know, definitely, you know, if you ease a bit of stamp duties, ease a little bit of policies, so there will be more, you know, interest from overseas. But by seeing that, you know, a lot of investors, so we're not talking about institutional investors, we're talking about individual investors. Mm. So individual investors still look at the country because Australian people are very welcome. So welcoming and um, uh, Australia is still a very pleasant place to live. And all these individual investors have still very strong interest in this country. Mm. Do you think the, the protests in Hong Kong have actually increased the number of Hong Kong residents 
who are now thinking about places like Australia? So we have a lot of inquiries from Hong Kong uh, and Singapore uh, for these two countries. Yeah. And that's for probably various reasons, right? Mm. So it could be because of the protest, because of, you know, so Australian become, you know, Sydney in particular, become more and more international city. Mm. And I, I think, yeah, uh, by saying that, you know, since last about three months, we have like 25% increase of the in, in interest from those two uh, regions, Singapore and Hong Kong. I ask this question because I've often brought it up on radio and television when I've been you know, asked questions. If Australia actually uh, encouraged the building of uh, expensive apartments around places like Sydney Harbour, on the water, um, at, say at South Bank in, in Melbourne, and they, they were specifically built for uh, uh, rich uh, Chinese and Hong Kong and Singaporean buyers, do you think there would be a, a great appetite for that kind of product from those sorts of buyers? Uh, definitely. So Australian, you know, Melbourne and Sydney has slowly become a really international city. So it's really pleasant to live in here and, you know, the, uh, I think it's, we're part of Asia Pacific and all the foreign investors, they are high net worth, you know, Asians. So they see Australia as part of Asia Pacific. So they feel very comfortable to be here. And also, Peter, you know, um, you know, comparing the prices, you know, in Australia and London or Tokyo or New York, we're still relatively reasonable. So I can, you know, so we need a lot of like high end products to approach the international buyers by saying that Asia Pacific. So we have inquiries from, from America, you know, America and um, also uh, uh, England recently. So, you know, you, international buyers doesn't mean it's only from Asia. So mm. it could be like from other regions as well. So um, is there, do you, in your mind, uh, a, a government... Um, desire, uh, desire not to encourage high-end property buyers to Australia. Oh, I, 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 you know, this is uh, you know because I'm, I don't, I'm not involved in the politics at all. Mm. So I'm only helping the people decided to move to Australia, regardless about political reasons. Mm. Right. So I, I see the increase in. in you know, inquiries from, you know, high net worth Asians or international buyers. And so if we, you know, if the policy is towards welcoming these people, I think we'll be, Australia will be benefit. Yeah. Here's a good question. And, and you're in a position to understand the, the answer. We know that in some parts of Australia, uh, there are an oversupply of apartments. Um, if the government was relaxed the rules, do you think a lot of um, Chinese, Hong Kong and Singaporean buyers would look at those apartments? I probably will think so, yes. Mm. Okay, so you know, investors are investors. They're also always looking for opportunities. Doesn't matter if it's in Canada, uh, America, or London, or in Australia. So Australia has the benefit to be so close to Asia. So, you know, you know, like investors, you know, I talked mm. to a few of my uh, uh, Chinese uh, investors, right? They're talking about, so why Australia? So they say, no, you know what? This no time difference. It's only two hours and we can handle it. And the people here are so good. So the people from China think, you know, if you go to Chinatown, you almost have no problem finding any food from, you know, any type of food. You feel part of like, you know, a comfortable living. So I think, yeah, if you're ease of some of the restrictions 
And um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure like uh, people from Asia or, or uh, international buyers will be definitely interested. Monica too, great to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me, Peter. One thing I've learned over the years is that a quantity surveyor can really make a property investment even better than you'd think when you first started dreaming up the idea of becoming a property investor. Today I'm talking to Jeff Pitney, who's director of Mintax, and I want to talk through some of the aspects of what a quantity surveyor can bring to the table. Jeff, thanks for joining us on the Switzer program. G'day, Peter. Thanks for having me. Great stuff, mate. Now, look, let's just go through. A lot of people don't know what a quantity surveyor does. Most people think a surveyor is a guy with, with desert boots and looking at a, uh, a, a camera or, or some kind of thing. It looks like a camera to work out where properties are. But quantity surveyors are different, aren't they? Yeah, look, they are different. We can be a little bit boring, and uh, most people's eyes glaze over when you tell them you're a quantity surveyor. Yeah. But um, we do get excited about about finding hidden tax savings in, in property. Mm. So, so a quantity surveyor assesses, assesses building costs, and predominantly what we do is we put together depreciation schedules for, on investment property. Okay, so let, let me explain to you, Jeff. Normal people watching this would glaze over when you use the word depreciation schedules. But both you and I know depreciation schedules are really exciting when you're an investor in property. So tell us what kinds of things are on a depreciation um, schedule and why people should be excited about it. Yeah. Well, it, Peter, look, it really depends on the type of property that we're looking at. But depreciation, if you think of it, it's, it's wear and tear on, a, on an investment property. So the same way that your motor car depreciates in value, the ATO allows you to claim that wear and tear on your investment property and offset that against the taxable income of that investment property. So most smart investors are aware of that. Um, as soon as they purchase a property, they look for the hidden depreciation in that property. But quite often you'll find investors and a lot in the industry are just, they're not aware of it or they claim it incorrectly. Um, and there's, there's thousands of dollars worth of depreciation that's missed. So I've seen over the years, and, and maybe it's an unfair generalisation, but a lot of accountants for their clients will just give some kind of general um, set of deductions for the investment property, when maybe the better strategy would be to get a quantity surveyor and actually go on site and do a forensic look at the entire investment property. I guess yep. you would totally agree with me. Yeah, yeah we do. And you hit the nail on the head there. It, it is really important to inspect the property. Um, there are occasions where we won't complete an inspection, but majority of times we'll always recommend an inspection. And the, the reason for that is there's items in that property that you wouldn't see if you didn't physically go out and inspect the property. The accountant is not going to go and inspect the property. So the accountant will often say, engage a quantity surveyor, they're registered tax practitioners. They'll go out, they'll do the inspection. They'll pick up all the small items like it might be window winders or smoke detectors or exhaust fans, fairly incidental little items, but any asset under $300 is eligible for a first year write-off. So you start adding up all those small items when you're out on the inspection. And all of a sudden you've got a couple of thousand dollars worth of, worth of first year assets that the investor can write off straight away. I guess, um, it's, I guess Jeff, it's important to throw in also that those things you might be talking about they do wear out, you might have to replace them at some point in time. 
and they could be much more expensive when you, you buy them five or six years or ten years down the track. So getting that deduction along the way actually effectively compensates you over time, doesn't it? It does. It sets you up to then go and replace that asset down the track. Mm. Um, there's the opportunity to write that asset off if it, if it breaks down before the written down value's got to, to a zero balance. Put in the new, the new asset, it might be a dishwasher, etc., and then start depreciating the new asset as well. So, mm. um, look, there's plenty of opportunities. And as I said before, it depends on the type of property. Um, it could be a modest um, one or two bedroom apartment, mum and dad investor, um, where the building's depreciating, it's a new property, so we're claiming all the assets inside the building as well. And then there might also be common area associated with the building. So it might be common lifts, common car parks, um, hallways. That, that owner's entitled to claim their share of the common area as well. So there's a multitude of ways that we can go into the property, find all the available depreciation and set up the, the reports. Mm. Yeah, yeah, uh, Jeff, some people say new properties can give you bigger deductions because you can get a, a certain percentage per year over a certain period of time that wouldn't apply to maybe a, a property that might be 50 years old. Can you explain that to us? Yeah, that's right. So the effective the ATO gives the building an effective life of generally 40 years. So each building depreciates over a period of 40 years from when it was built. So if it's a 50-year-old property, there's no depreciation left in the building. Um, but remember, if there's renovation works that have been carried out after the date of it's July 1987 is the key date. So any renovation works done to that property after that date in 1987. Um, they give rise to a claim as well. So that's the other reason why you, when you're doing your inspection, you're looking for things like an extension, a rumpus room that's been extended or a, 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 um, a kitchen or a bathroom renovation that, that whilst it's an older property, it may not be eligible, the renovation works are definitely eligible. So if someone, say, bought a million dollar property, effectively, because you said 40 years, does that mean 2.5% of that million dollar value becomes a deduction each year for 40 years? That's right, 2.5% on the building. Mm. So if we're looking at um, a new building though, Peter, it's 2.5% on the building, but all those other assets that I mentioned before, like the, the smoke detectors, the window blinders, the carpets, the drapes, the, the kitchen appliances, they depreciate at a much faster rate. So mm. it's the QS's role to go out and identify those items, take them out of that 2.5% pool, and then accelerate the depreciation on those items. It might be first year write-off, mm. it might be three or four years, it might be seven years, depending on the effective life that the ATO gives that asset. Mm. Well, well that, is there any difference between uh, a residential property used for investment uh, purposes and a commercial property and depreciation? There is, they, they are treated a little bit differently. So those, those assets, you talked before about a 50 year old house, if it was a 50-year-old factory, still too old to claim depreciation on the building, but the assets within the, that factory, because it's a commercial property, those assets, we reset the value of those assets at the date of settlement, regardless of their age. Hmm. So it could be a 20 or 30-year-old air conditioning system throughout the, uh, the office area. We reset the value of that, and it starts depreciating for that investor from the date that they purchased the property. Hmm. So there are greater opportunities with commercial, and obviously the the higher the build cost, the greater the amount of depreciation that's available. Yeah, and I guess if you buy an old commercial building, then you renovate it. Going forward, the, there'd be a percentage depreciation on the renovation value you added? That's right. 
so you, you're not only you're claiming the depreciation on the original purchase, mm. we can also then add into that, that depreciation schedule any additional costs that the client's carried out as well. So rather than having two separate reports, they're moulded into the one report. And what about rural properties? Yeah, good, good opportunities for primary producers. So the government's given real incentive. Um, again, assets that might normally depreciate over that 40-year period it might be machinery sheds, um, milking dairy, dairy assets. Um, we're able to accelerate the depreciation on those as well. And they, they might have first, second or third, third one, two or three year um, ability to write them off over a short period of time. So fencing is a classic example there. Fencing might normally depreciate over 40 years, um, but it's treated differently for primary producers and there's much greater opportunities to, to get better depreciation up front. All right, now Jeff, one final question. And this is once again, looking at old versus new. Um, a, a couple of years ago, the government changed the, the rules around what you guys could claim for a property investor. Explain what the changes are and, and, and why getting a place that is new um, not only has depreciation of the building advantage, but because all the stuff inside is new, that becomes uh, tax deductible as well. Yeah, so we're just talking about the commercial um, buildings where we could reset the value of the assets. So up until three years ago, we could go into a residential property. Again, it could be 20 or 30 year old residential property. We could also reset the value of the assets in the residential property at the date of settlement um, and start claiming those all, all over again. The ATO put a stop to that uh, in the budget in 2017, uh, May 2017. So we can only claim those assets in a residential property if it's a brand new residential property. So it hasn't been lived in, the owner hasn't preoccupied it um, and it's been purchased new off the plan or it's been built by the client. So not only then are they claiming the building, they're also claiming all the assets inside the building. If it's a, a used property, according to the ATO, or if it's 12 months old or two years old, there's still plenty of depreciation available in the building itself, but we have to now exclude those assets within the building. Someone, for example, had a home unit, uh, gutted it, painted it, and put all new stuff in it, would you then be able to claim it if someone bought it as an investor? The ATO has a definition of what a renovation is and, and what, what you can and can't then claim as a new asset. Hmm. It can't be a property, a property that's just been done up for sale. They've put in some new carpets, they've given it a lick of paint um, and put a new oven in, sold the property. That That is still regarded as a used property. It has to be basically uh, a full renovation at a commercial level mm. for it then to be classified as a new property. But the ATO does have a definition that's covered in the tax act. Yeah, so it would have to be a, um, a fair income uh, renovation as opposed to just a, a tart up. Yeah, a developer buys a block of units, guts them completely, as you said, mm. and, and refits them, new electricals, new plumbing, uh, new appliances, um, then that would generally qualify as a new, a new construction. Okay, last question. Um, a son or daughter of yours comes to you and says, Dad, I want to buy an investment property. Should I buy an old one or a new one? What would you say? Uh, <laughs> for depreciation, <laughs> right. you definitely go. <laughs> depreciation, you, you definitely want to go for a new property. Yeah. But there's lots of variables, obviously, when you're buying investment property. Yeah, it's not really. all about depreciation, but you want to claim more depreciation, you buy something new. Okay, mate. Thanks very much for coming on the program. Good one, Peter. Thank you.
That's Jeff Pinney, director of uh, Mintax.